The rest of us are going to be in Revelation chapter 3, and I'm just going to start reading Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking today at verses 1 uh, through 13, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through uh, 6 here. Jesus is the speaker. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Back in 2008 and 2009, when we were just beginning to plant the Bridge Church, to start the church, uh, in 2008, we were in the process of selling our home and moving to Eau Claire. After 53 weeks on the market, we were able to sell our home after reducing our price $55,000. As you know, if you lived through that time period, there was an economic crisis that was just beginning. It was about the housing market and the banking industry. And in 2009, a new term became almost in the headlines daily, a business term, a banking term, the term toxic assets. You know, assets are things that... Um, are valuable to us. They are good. They are beneficial. And then the opposite of that is that liabilities are things, in, in the financial world, they are things that we, we owe money on. Uh, in, the, in the banking business, historically, during that period, home, home values had been rising. People like that, don't they, when their home value uh, keeps rising. But in 2000 and seven and eight and nine, when the housing market hit, the value of homes decreased somewhat drastically for some people. And uh, that put the banks in an unusual predicament. Um, normally, banks make money by loaning out money for people to buy houses and people pay interest and that's how banks make money. What they don't want is they don't want the house back. They don't want foreclosures, even though people think that they do sometimes. They really don't want to go into the real estate business. And what happened in 2008, I'll give you an example because we actually have a daughter who had, had a house in the state of Washington and they bought the house in 2005 for $180,000 small three-bedroom house, no basement, just simple house for a new family. And um, by 2008, the house was valued at 
$140,000. All of a sudden, the bank has a mortgage on a house that is way below what they loaned on it. That became a liability for the bank. It was an asset. Now it's a liability. And that's what a toxic asset is. And that was a new term. Um, we can have topic assets in our personal lives as well. Um, we have assets, we have things that are good in our lives that were designed to be good for us or can be good for us, but if they're misused, um, they can become hurtful. For example, when you think about human sexuality, human sexuality was designed by God, and it was designed for good. And yet, if it's misused, it can become toxic. Human sexuality can be a toxic asset. Many things could become toxic. Um, something as simple as education. Education can be a really good thing. We have the freedom to pursue education, so we can go in areas that we enjoy or in areas that will help us uh, be able to earn a living. Education can be a great asset. But if education doesn't leave you time for God, then it can become toxic. Or what about your career or your job? It can be a really good thing. But if it takes so much time or energy or focus and God doesn't fit there, then it can become toxic. Your physical appearance can be an asset. Your athletic ability can be an asset. Your music ability can be an asset. You, you may have a lot of different skills that are assets, but if they become the focus of life, they become toxic. They can hurt our relationship with God. The church in Sardis focused on the, their assets that became toxic. And that's where we begin today in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 in the book of Revelation. We have, uh, in chapter 2, we started, Jesus wrote letters to seven churches. We have covered um, four already. Today we're going to talk about two more, and we're going to end the series next week. So, Jesus is the speaker, and uh, he is writing to a church. And Jesus, this is the only place that Jesus gives letters to churches in the entire Bible. The church, in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, this is what Jesus says, remember that an angel is a messenger, and uh, I believe in this case it's a human messenger. This word was, is normally of angelic messengers. But sometimes it can refer to a human messenger. John the Baptist was, called, was used this terminology as a messenger. His disciples were, and Jesus' disciples were also uh, given this term on occasion for this term messenger. Um, Sardis was a very wealthy city. It had significant financial assets. It was a, a, a place of uh, textile production. Uh, they produced dye, so fabric and clothing were um, um, an important uh, uh, a manufacturing area in, in the city, and much of their wealth came from these things. 
Um, Sardis was a city that um, had a very strategic location. Uh, they, the people in their city loved it. They felt safe and secure. Secure. It was built in the mountains. It was up high. And their only approach to the city was from the front. And so militarily, all they had to do was put some guards at the front gate, and they had the place locked down. Except two times in their history, they became slack. And they had a reputation for this. They were so comfortable and so secure that on two different occasions in their history, the enemy came up, the back wall brought an entire army, and simply overran while the guards were sleeping because they just weren't ready. Um, Let's see the location of the churches on our maps. So these are the seven churches. We started down in Ephesus. That was the first church, and then Smyrna, and then to um, we went to Pergamum and Thyatira, and now down to Sardis, and then we will go to Philadelphia after this. So um, we have the portrait of Christ in uh, verse 1. These are my words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, just like the other churches. And so you can kind of see there's an outline to each one of these uh, I'm not really creative here because the outline is the same every week. And you can, you can outline all seven churches like that. And so sometimes different words are used. This is a portrait of Christ. It's a description of Christ. It's a picture of Christ. It's a vision of Christ. That's how different people have outlined this passage. Um, and so what we see from Revelation chapter 1, this picture here, this portrait, the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven spirits is a reference, very likely, I believe, to the Holy Spirit, speaking of the fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Seven being this idea of um, perfection, and it's found so many times in the book of Revelation. The seven stars refer to the seven messengers, or perhaps the seven pastors of the churches. I can tell you what, they are not perfect. I can tell you that. Um, the praise that comes from Christ, uh, this is a commendation. Some, some outlines have used that phrase, that, that term. In chapter 3, verse 1 also, he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive. And this is really not a praise because there's nothing else to say good about them. Nothing. Christ knows their deeds, at least from their past. He knows about their reputation. Um, perhaps at one time, they had a really great track record. They served their Lord faithfully. They proclaimed the good news. They shared it with their neighbors and their friends. They, they were bringing people to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They were discipling people and mentoring people. They were caring for the poor. They were serving the sick and the dying. They were loving people. They were praying for God's leadership and direction in their lives. That was maybe once the case. But that's in the past. That's not their present situation. And now it's only a reputation. It is not reality. 
Their, their focus now is looking good. Their reputation has become toxic. They were doing the right things, saying the right things, good things, Christian things, but something really important is missing. The criticism that comes from Christ, he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Not a good thing for Jesus to say to his church. Now, um, they're not living life like the life that they were called to. Now they're only going through the motions. Now they are spiritually stuck. They have stopped growing as Christ followers. Now they are without spiritual power and spiritual authority. And in Jesus' eyes, they're dead. They're lifeless. He says, but you are dead. So what does he tell them? He says, wake up. Wake up from your spiritual slumber. He says, pay attention. Re-engage with God. Get your spiritual adrenaline moving and wake up. Purge the toxicity in your life. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. They need to refocus their spiritual lives. They need to strengthen what, what they've been given. They need nourishment, spiritual vitamins and, spirit, and a spiritual supplement that comes from God's Word. They need strength and power that comes from the Holy Spirit. They were given the Holy Spirit in the first place, but they're somehow figuring out how to live with, without Him. They need a revitalized relationship with Christ, their Lord and their Savior. They need to strengthen what remains and is about to die. And then he says, For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Jesus says their, their deeds, their, their, their works, the things that they were to do to serve him, ministry that they were to be given. And he says, it's unfinished. I have more for you to do, but you have just slipped into neutral, and you are dying, church. Now, a couple of observations here. Uh, first, just in case, just for clarity, what this is not. This is not about their salvation. And um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 well-known uh, passage. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes uh, to the church at Ephesus, he says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Um, it's by grace. It's God's favor. Grace is God's unconditional favor. It's something we can't earn or deserve. It's by grace you've been saved. That's, that's essential for salvation. And it's through faith. That's how we receive. And this is not from yourselves. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. It's not about what you have done or what you can do or what you will do. It is a gift of God. God is the provider. He is the giver. Salvation is a gift. And by faith, we receive it. We embrace it. Um, so that's what it's, it's not about 
doing good works. It's not that Jesus has more works for them to do so that they could be saved. That's not it. Um, What this is, it's the issue of good works. And if we just go to Ephesians 2.10, now think in terms of, we were just at Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Now this is the very next verse. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God in advance, which God prepared for in advance for us to do. So uh, I, I always think this is an amazing verse. The church was created in Christ Jesus. It was God's work. He made the church by dying on the cross. And then when people come to faith, they become a part of the body of Christ, his church. We are God's handiwork. He made the church. Created in Christ Jesus for what? What, Why? What's the purpose? To do good works. I have been given things to do. You have been given things to do. The bridge has been given things to do. And they were prepared in advance for us to do. There are things for us in our future for us to follow Christ and he will lead us and we'll walk right into them as a church. And if you follow Christ, you will walk right into what he wants for you individually. And let me just say, in our culture, we're so focused on individuals that we don't get the big picture of the church. The New Testament's all about the church and we are a part of it. The New Testament is, is not all about my individual walk with Christ. It's about advancing the kingdom of God through his church, okay? Um, And so what would help? What would help this church to stay connected closely with Jesus? And to the church at Sardis, Jesus said these words in the Gospel of John, but this would be very helpful. John 15, 5, for the church at Sardis. Jesus said to his followers, he says, I'm the vine, you who are my disciples, you are, who are Christ's followers, are the branches. So the vine is the branches. It's, it's a metaphor. And uh, the vine is the source of life. And the branches get all of their life, all of their organic resources come from the vine. The same is true spiritually for us. He's the vine, and we are the branches, and all of our sustenance, all of our spiritual nourishment only come from him. And when we disconnect and put spiritual values on a low level, when we put spiritual disciplines down, and when we don't think about asking God for help or strength or the power of his Holy Spirit, we become disconnected and there is no growth. Jesus said, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Just like the grapevine, if the branches aren't cut off or damaged, they will produce fruit, much fruit. And then he says, and this is, this is where the church is in Sardis. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's exactly what's happening at the church at Sardis. They are doing nothing. And that's a real danger for us. It's a danger for us as a church. It's a danger for us as individual people. If you study the history of the church, 
There's no church that has survived all through history as an individual church. They all have their peaks and their valleys and then death. It doesn't have to be that way because Jesus is the one who has the life. Zechariah 4.6 uh, says this. This is from the Old Testament. The same thing was true in the Old Testament. Um, Zechariah records... Uh, this is, these are the words of God to Zerubbabel, and uh, it was about building the temple at that time. And this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by, by, not by might, nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not going to be physical strength. It's not going to be physical strength, uh, power. It's not going to be physical resources or human resources. It's going to be by God's power that his work is accomplished and gets done. In his timing. I'm going to jump to verse 3, the instructions from Christ. Revelation 3 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Go back to the basics. Understand what God did for you in the gospel. I hope I repeat that a lot for you because it's so important that we forget. And that's exactly what happens in the church. Is the central things become side issues because we want new things or better things or a happier life. We're tired of the old things. There's some things we ought to never be tired of when we're not, we shouldn't ever be ungrateful about what God has done for us. We need to understand how God intended for us to communicate with him in prayer. We need to be reminded how God uses his word for spiritual food for our soul. We know, need to know the value of community, that the purpose of the church is to gather week by week by week to encourage. And there, so many things happen on a Sunday morning apart from the worship service. And it's the value of hanging out together, what happens. And when you miss it, it's a very... So many important things. And, and we are missing something when we can't be here. And I'm just hoping that God will raise that value among us. He says in verse 3, Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Uh, repent. He, he, turn back to God, he says. Turn away from your toxic assets. And then he gives this warning. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Those are harsh words for Jesus, from Jesus to his church, to the one he loves and the one he died for. I will come like a thief. I will come as, as your judge. And you won't know. It's going to be a surprise. Now, for true believers, it could just be divine discipline. It could be very serious. We, we learned in 1 Corinthians 11 about divine discipline, that there are times when, when God takes people home early, people who are messing up his, his testimony, who, who, who are an obstacle to the gospel, 
Sometimes there were sicknesses and illness, and I'm, I'm never going to be one to say that somebody has this because of this. That is, I do not have that kind of authority. But I believe it happens sometimes to Christ followers who are not honoring God with their life. We have the promise from Christ in verses 4 through 6. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothing. And the imagery, imagery here is of, of soiled clothing is a metaphor that describes a sinful lifestyle that actually most of the people of the church in Sardis had. This was the majority of the church. Believers who had soiled garments. You know, it's not unlike a soiled diaper, the word picture. How about in a soiled adult diaper? That's how our sin comes across to Jesus when we're Christ followers. He says, yet you have a few people. A few of you have been faithful. A small number in the church have been walking with Christ. They have not let good things become toxic in their lives. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Worthy because of Christ. Worthy because of that close relationship that they have. They've been faithful. They've endured. Their lifestyles display Christ. They are worthy to be in Christ's presence. And he acknowledges that. In verse 5, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. One day, those who are victorious, who finish the race will be like them, and they too will be dressed in white in the eternal kingdom that we have looked at in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Sometimes I think it was really a good idea that we did that first before we came to Revelation 2 and 3. Um, the white clothing signifies purity, a holiness, someone who has been cleansed from their sin. And then Jesus says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge them, that, will acknowledge that, that name before my Father and his angels. The person who is faithful will have their name in the book of life. One of the reasons this is important is because in the first century Sardis, there was persecution a lot of it came from the Jewish community. And um, the Jewish community was powerful. You know, their, their religion was based on the Old Testament. That's good. But their religion had become toxic because they, weren't, they were picking and choosing the things that they wanted. And they were doing it not in God's power, but in human power. And so when a, when a person came to faith in Jesus Christ sometimes, like in Sardis in the first century, and if they had a Jewish background, their name was written in the synagogue in Sardis. But if they came to faith in Christ, their name was crossed off, it was erased, it was marked out, and they no longer were a member of the synagogue. And it was like the authority of the synagogue rulers that their name would be blotted out of heaven as well. And Jesus said, not so. Your name 
is in the book of life. Verse 6, Jesus closed with a familiar phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Question for us. Do you try to live your life without Christ's strength, without his power? It's so easy to live life and make Jesus just a nice addition. You know, just the icing on the cake. And, you know, is it helpful? Does Jesus help me? If he doesn't help me, I'll look to other things for help. It's easy to deceive ourselves thinking we only need Jesus when we're, when we're in trouble. You know, when we face hard times. So many times that's when people come back to church. It's they recognize they need help. But what about the good times? It's easy just to go through the motions when we serve him. Yet Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Now, apart from me, you can do nothing. How do you think that impacts our marriages? That if we aren't connected to Jesus, how does that affect my relationship with my wife? Or how does that affect my relationship with my children? Parents? If you're good Christians, but doing your own thing, the best of your ability, once in a while you check in with Jesus... What impact is that going to have on your family? You're raising a whole generation for the future. What, what, what kind of impact is it if we don't rely on Christ? What impact does that have in our work environment? Does it make any difference? I mean, yeah, it does. How does that affect our testimony, our witness, if um, we're just going through the motions? How do we influence our work environment or our friendships? Do we need Christ some of the time or all the time? We come to verses 7 through 13, to the church that remains faithful. To the church that remains faithful. The church is in verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? So Jesus speaks now to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia. The city was named after two brothers. Um... It was named after a king named Adelus Philadelphus, okay? His younger brother was tempted by the Romans to uh, betray his brother, who was the king. And um, he refused. And it was because of this commitment of the brothers Philadelphus, which is very much like Philadelphia, that the city was named a city that we would describe as the city of brotherly love because of what the word means. The portrait of Christ, um, let me, uh, the God of, uh, of the city, the most important was the, was the pagan cult of uh, Dionysus, and that was the god of wine. And uh, it dominated the religious world. And so people under the influence of alcohol were spiritual. 
They were connected under the influence. The portrait of Christ comes in verse 7. Jesus describes himself. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Totally set apart to God. Totally set apart from sin. Totally set apart to serve the true and living God, his Father. He is a true, he's a true God. He is true and trustworthy. His words are true and they are reliable. He speaks truth. He is honest. He is also the one who holds the key of David. Key of David was in Isaiah 22, 22, but the key is symbolic of authority and it implies authority in the kingdom. Um, Jesus is the messianic king from David's line. Um, and uh, it implies authority in the kingdom and all the resources of God's kingdom are available to Christ. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Christ's authority is supreme. And if he opens his kingdom to someone, no one can shut it. And if he closes his kingdom to someone, no one can open it. The praise uh, comes from Christ in verses 8 through 10. He says, I know your deeds. Jesus knows. He knows they have served him faithfully. And he is pleased. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. The kingdom is open for them. They are welcome in Christ's eternal kingdom. But this door is open too because of their faithful walk. And now there is a door of opportunity for ministry, an opportunity to invite others into the kingdom. He knows their deeds. And he is the one who has prepared good works for them to walk into. He has prepared these things in advance. What would Jesus say about us? Would he be pleased with how we do church? How we express our faith to our community, the community of Eau Claire? Um, and then what are the good works that he has prepared for us? I, I asked that earlier, but I'm asking it again to think about that. You know, our future is wide open. What will it look like in one year? What will it look like in five years? What will it look like in ten years? Will we be focused enough on Christ for our community to see Will we be able to see what God has for us? And will we be able to walk into these things? Or maybe we're just going to be too busy because, you know, we're really busy people. Life's got a lot of stuff. Jesus goes on to say in verse 8, he says, I know that you have little strength. Boy, does that sound like us? We're tired. Our days are full. We're busy, busy people. He says, I know you have little strength, little physical strength. He's saying you have a little influence by the world's standards, but 
You've kept my word. And this is what pleases Jesus. They have been faithful, literally following Christ. They have not denied his name. They have not denied Christ, and they have not ignored Christ. In verse 9, he says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. In this, in this city, too, as in nearly all of the New Testament communities where we find churches, there is a very strong Jewish community, and there is a lot of hatred between Jewish um, religious people and Christians. And, uh, they, and they, um, they, they look for ways to intimidate Christians. They did in the first century. And they look to ways to persecute, if possible. Uh, if they could trip them up for the sake of getting the government involved, they, they would like to do that. This, this, now, I don't think Jesus would say this about all Jewish communities, because he was a Jewish man, and so were the disciples. And, um, but they weren't truly seeking God. They had the Old Testament. They didn't want more. They didn't, they, they didn't want the Messiah promised in the Old Testament when he stood in front of them. And then this is just sort of the attitude all over the Roman Empire among Jewish synagogues. Um, and here Jesus goes on to say even that they were influenced by satanic forces. Um, he calls it the synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews, but they're not. They're not completed Jews. They haven't embraced the promises of God in the Old Testament and seen them played out in the Messiah and have put their trust in the Messiah. He says, I will make those who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. One day, all unbelievers will be humbled before the Lord Jesus Christ. They will fall down and worship him, and they will also know that those who placed their faith in him were right. And those who, who placed their faith in, in him will reign with him in his kingdom. Verse 10, since... Uh, you have kept my command to endure patiently. I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Their faithfulness to Christ will be rewarded. Their perseverance will be acknowledged when the hour of trial comes. Now, this is a specific time in history. It is the hour of trial for the whole world. The whole world. That's never happened before. It's always happened in just parts of the world. But there is a time coming when there will be an hour, hour of testing, an hour of trial, a time of tribulation. That's what we call it, the tribulation. And I believe it's Revelation chapter 6 through 19. We are in Revelation 3. That time that is coming starts in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul uh, gave this same idea to the church at Thessalonica. 
He says, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So here are people who had come to a radical faith in Christ as adults, and they, were, they rejected their former idols, and now they were serving the real God. Next slide. And wait. That's, what, that's the very same thing that the people in Philadelphia are doing. They are waiting patiently and faithfully for Christ, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, the resurrection, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What is the coming wrath? Is it eternal judgment? Or is it a time specifically on earth where the earth will be judged before eternity? Before This is not hell. Hell's going to be worse than this. Uh, this is what John says in Revelation chapter six. Chapter six, he says, "For the great day of the, of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it?" Revelation six. This is where it begins, the time of judgment on earth, before Jesus comes back a second time to bring a final end of judgment. Um, the criticism from Christ for the church at Philadelphia, none. No criticism, no harsh words. The instructions from Christ, verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon, if you remember. He's not saying I'm coming like, we don't know when he's coming, but he's saying I'm, when I come, it's going to be quickly, and it's a surprise. That's the emphasis of coming soon. He says, hold on to what you have. Hold on to your values. Hold on to your commitment and to your walk with Jesus. Hold on to your new life you found in Christ. Hold on to the word of God. Hold on to the constant practice of prayer so that no one will take your crown. Crown signifies royalty. It is a reward for those who serve the king of kings. This is not salvation. This is reward. A reward can be lost through spiritual failure. Salvation will not be lost. It's a gift from God. But rewards for faithful service can be lost. He says that no one will take your crown. The promise that comes from Christ, Revelation chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, though the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. This refers to the temple in the eternal kingdom. And the temple is, is Jesus, and the temple is the Father. The significance of the pillar could be likened to the practice in Philadelphia. This is what took place in the first century. Those who were wealthy donors of the gods of Philadelphia, like um, the, the god Dionysus, wealthy donors could be given a pillar in the temple with their own personal name on it. That was really cool. And Jesus is saying, to you who are victorious, I'm going to give you a temple. I'm going to give you, you're going to be a pillar in my temple. Never again will they leave it. You're going to be in there for eternity. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of 
the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. Revelation chapter 21. And those who are victorious will have this identity in the eternal kingdom. And they will experience reward. And he says, and I will also write on them a new name, just like they did in the pagan temples. Verse 13, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Question is, what is God saying to you today? Are you seeking to live your life without Christ? Without his strength? Without his power? Without thinking about relying on him? Are, are, are we becoming spiritually slack? How should we remain faithful? Ephesians 5.18 Do not get drunk on wine. The God of Dionysus, which leads to debauchery in a moral lifestyle or out of control lifestyle. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And he's saying, don't let wine be your Lord. Don't let something else influence your decision and attitude. Something else, something other than Christ. He says, but be filled with God's Spirit so that he may influence your decisions and your attitudes. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we've looked at this one a few times. Verse 7, he says, rather, this is the Apostle Paul, train yourself to be godly. This is on you and me. There's a part we have to play where we have a discipline in our life with the purpose of moving toward being a godly person or a Christ-like person or growing spiritually. Uh, just like in anything we want to, that's important and that we want to do well, that requires discipline. It requires training. The Christian life isn't, you know, if you're just looking for something easy, there's a place for discipline. There's a place for training, pursuing. Training is, if you, in, in music, training in sports requires effort. It requires practice, regular practice. Repeat, repeat over and over. That's what I do when I have my quiet time. It's a practice. Sometimes it's not always fun. Or do I always get really excited? But it's a discipline. And it really helps me with my life. If You should see it without. Um, and then he says, for, for, some, uh, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life right now, today, tomorrow, next week, as well as for eternity. So what is God saying to you today? Are there things in your life that are good things, but they've become toxic? Jesus says, for us to wake up, make the changes. Um, realize, realign your life under the authority of Christ. To hold on to what you have. Could we stand and let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you for... 
your, the letter to uh, the churches. To the, now we have looked at six churches. And it's a chance for us to refocus as a church, to just evaluate week after week. It's easy just to focus on the, the good things that we're doing, and I'm grateful, God, that you have done some great things through the bridge. And yet, let us not um, become complacent, not grow slack in the future. Help us to be sharp spiritually. Help us as individuals to make adjustments, adjustments that you want us to make. Help us to remember that apart from you, we can do nothing and that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. For Jesus' sake, amen.